you'd like, you can turn in your Bible to the Gospel of John, our New Testament reading. Comes from John's Gospel, chapter 19. We'll read John 19, verses 17 through 27. This is the very word of God. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answers, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Thus far, the reading of God's word. If you'd like, you can turn in the Old Testament to the book of Micah. Continuing our time in the book of Micah, come to Micah chapter 3 verses 5 through 8, and we said that the book of Micah is comprised of three cycles, each cycle moving from judgment to salvation, uh, from sin unto grace, from what God's people are doing in their sin to what God is going to do for His glory. And we're in the second of those two cycles, the second cycle beginning in chapter 3, And we're in the judgment portion of this second cycle. And each cycle gets a little bit more intense. And so Micah has already addressed the prophets and had said that the message that they speak is not the truth of God. The message that they speak is what man wants to hear. And he picks up a similar judgment against them here in verses 5 through 8. So lend your attention. This is the very word of God. 
Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be blacked over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners be put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. Our great God, your word remains forever. What a wonder that this word spoken some thousands of years ago continues to echo down through the ages. And this, by the ministry of Christ, His Spirit. And we acknowledge our utter dependence upon that same Spirit. Not just to see and to understand truth, but to walk in accord with it. To yield ourselves and bow to it. To delight in the author of truth. The one who is the truth. The Lord Jesus Christ. Our great and true prophet. And so we ask even now that this life-giving ministry would take place, that you would open up our hearts and our minds to understand and to eat these words, to live upon them, and to the praise of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. Whoever originally said, we do not negotiate with terrorists, clearly did not have children. (laughs) My brother-in-law sent me that rather funny text one night, and I assumed he was having a rough day. (laughs) I assumed a particularly hard bedtime routine had just occurred, and I've been a part of many a bad bedtime routine. (laughs) If you're a parent, I'm guessing you have too. If you're not a parent, just ask your parents how bedtime went when you were little. My own dear mother, who loves us very much, will still get this far away and panic-stricken look in her face whenever the topic of bedtime comes up. She's like, bedtime. Bedtime was terrible. (laughs) For all our earnest striving after dutiful children and patience parents, bedtime so easily becomes, just give me what I want and nobody gets hurt. (laughs) 
Children want a lot of things, I've found. They want snacks. I'm hungry. They want waters. I'm thirsty. They want the light on. I'm scared. They want the temperature adjusted. I'm too hot. I'm too cold. They want to go to the bathroom one more time and so on and so forth. Parents, I've found, just want one thing. Just a quiet house to go to sleep in. (laughs) But with everybody tired and a host of desires competing for fallen hearts, the whole thing quickly devolves into just give me what I want and no one gets hurt. Micah continues to call to task the leaders of Israel. He's just spoken against the corrupt judges who far from knowing good from evil, they actually have flipped it on its head. They love evil and hate good. And he now turns against the false prophets who, similar to the judges, are using their position as God's spokesman to get what they want, to exploit God's people. Their refrain, like the refrain at bedtime, is just give me what I want and God won't hurt you. That's just a terrible variation of the flesh's cry refracted through the prophetic office. Because that's what the flesh cries, isn't it? Just give me what I want, and no one gets hurt. It's terribly humbling to think that so intense is that cry of the flesh that it can even appear in the holy office of prophet. And that the reality that attends this holy office can be used to advance that sinful aim. Prophets spoke for God. The implication in this text is that these prophets were true prophets in some sense. That's implied, isn't it? By the judgment that we heard, that God's going to take away vision from them, that he's going to take away his word from them, implying what? That at one point they had true visions. They had the true word. But in some mysterious and dreadful way, they had become in love with the things of this world and saw the holy office that they occupied as just another opportunity to gain in the terms and the conditions of the things of this world. We're not naive. We've seen this happen in the church of God, haven't we? Pulpits commandeered to advance this or that will of this or that man. Congregations rallied to advance this or that will, this or that idea of the fallen will of man. We're not immune to this fallen propensity of the heart that will seize upon whatever is true of a position, whatever is ours by God's providence, to advance our own fallen and sinful will. Now, admittedly, we are in a better position than Israel of old because the true prophet has come. The Lord Jesus Christ has come. And more than that, the spirit of truth has been poured out. When Christ ascended to the right hand, what did he do? He sent the spirit whom he had promised, whom he had won, 
whom had been given to him without measure, such that he poured it out upon his people. That great day that Moses longed for, when Joshua, his faithful servant, came running to him because there were those prophesying in the camp saying, Moses, there are people prophesying in the camp. Stop them. And Moses said, would that all God's people prophesied, meaning would that all God's people partook of this gift of the Spirit of God that had been reserved for few in the old economy, but now have been poured out upon many. We stand in a better position than Israel in some ways, but not such that we're immune, not such that we're immune to the allure that false prophets have. False prophets had followers. Most of Israel, the suggestion is, followed after these false prophets. Just because we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, it does not mean that we are immune from the deceptive influence of false teachers, false messages, false gospels that the flesh seizes upon because it sees in those false messages the delight of its fleshly appetites. And so we can consider this morning briefly false prophets and true and the good gift of the true prophet Jesus Christ and leading us forth in paths of righteousness. First, consider the false prophets. This is how he opens. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets. It may be better there to render concerning against. Thus says the Lord against the false prophets. This is a word of condemnation against these men who were seizing upon this position not for the good of God's people, not for the glory of His name, but for their own sinful gain. False prophets were a perennial issue in Israel. You can read about the warning that Moses gives God's people, even all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. He says, this is how you'll know that a person is a false prophet. Do you know the two basic criteria for discerning a false prophet that Deuteronomy gives? The two basic criteria for discerning a false prophet according to Deuteronomy are simple. One, if what he says is going to happen doesn't happen, he's a false prophet. That makes sense. (laughs) That's easy enough. Someone predicts the end of the world, well, the day after that prediction renders them false. (laughs) It's rather awkward. (laughs) You got some song and dance to say why they got it wrong and why they're still a true prophet. It's simple in uh, terms of Deuteronomy. He says, look, if he says something's going to happen and it doesn't happen, not a true prophet. But that kind of opens up a problem, doesn't it? The problem of time. (laughs) Well, what are we supposed to do in the interim? (laughs) If he's saying this is going to happen, and then in the interim you've got to do this, do we just suspend judgment until that day comes and he's either verified or discredited? No. Because the second criteria, according to the book of Deuteronomy, is what? Prophet's not going to cause you to worship anything other than God, anyone other than the true and living God. So the other criteria by which you may know a false prophet is whether they depart from the truth of God. 
Now, God's people of old didn't have the full scope of revelation that we have, but they had the truth of God. They didn't have even the full canonical scriptures written for them, but they had the stories. They had the testimony that was passed down from generation to generation about who this, wa- who this God was and what He called His people to do. And any prophet that was bringing God's people away from the true and living God, the one who had revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who had revealed himself to Moses, the one who said, I alone am God, you shall worship no other God than me. Anyone who said anything that was out of accord with that was a false prophet. So Micah here picks up this perennial problem of those rising up in Israel. Speaking in the name of the true and living God, but falsely. It's a similar situation that Micah encounters that we see in the book of Jeremiah. If you want, you can turn there. Jeremiah 23. God's true prophets were constantly being accosted by false prophets. We see this with Amos. We see this with Micah. We see this with Elijah and the so-called prophets of Baal. We see this here with Micah. But in Jeremiah, we get an extended glimpse into it. Jeremiah 23, starting in verse 13. In the prophets of Samaria, I saw an unsavory thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people astray. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I've seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poisoned water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all the land. You hear some variations on how these false prophets work. Some of the false prophets just blatantly prophesied in the name of other gods, right? That's what verse 13 says. They prophesied by Baal. You see this in Elijah. These were prophets in Israel. These were prophets of God who were speaking to the people in the name of a different God. Well, that's a violation of the second criteria. You can't do that. (laughs) That plainly flags that this is a false prophet. But he says the prophet's going on in Jerusalem was even worse. Verse 14, but in the prophets of Jerusalem, I've seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. This seems to be closer to the situation that Micah is envisioning here. These prophets, far from calling God's people back from their sin, far from exalting the holy God, they're actually using their office to advance evil. They're throwing the weight of their office behind the exploiters. Why? Because they're gaining financially. Because they're gaining in the terms and conditions of this world. That's what Micah plainly says. They lead my people astray. They cry peace 
when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouth. In Charlie Brown Christmas, have you seen this? Charlie Brown Christmas. Charlie Brown is deeply troubled. He's having a real existential crisis, that Charlie Brown. And he comes across help in the form of a booth. And he sits down across from the help in this booth. What seems to be the trouble, Lucy asks. Well, Charlie Brown starts, and Lucy interrupts, I'd ask that you first deposit my fee, please. Help for a price. Rescue for sale. Salvation for exchange. That's essentially what the prophets were saying. We're happy to bless. Just bring that tender calf along. We're happy to pronounce peace. Just slide some silver into my pocket. So it's no wonder that Micah accuses them of misleading his people, misleading the people of God. Why? This is an egregious misrepresentation of God. For a whole host of reasons, right? Don't they open up? It suggests that peace with God can be bought. They declare peace when they have something to eat. Peace with God? You can buy peace with God? What an awful picture of the true and living God who needs nothing and who gives freely. But not only that, it suggests that God isn't concerned with sin, only cash. God's not concerned with your conduct, my conduct, the state of your heart, my heart. He's just concerned with the financial bottom line. And that also suggests that if you can buy his blessing, he must really be favorably disposed towards the rich and despise the poor. Micah says that these foul prophets, in using their position to gain and pronouncing their blessing upon those who pay, pronouncing their holy wars against those who don't pay, confirming the sinner in his sin by saying all is well, discouraging the exploited in their exploitation because he gives the impression that God doesn't care about the lowly. He says curse is coming upon you. Shame on you. Now make no mistake, we bring our tithes and offerings unto God, don't we? We bring our gifts and our time and our energy, offerings unto God. But do not think for one moment those things buy peace with God. How many people take solace in their conscience because of that perennial excuse we give, right? When somebody knocks on our door, well, I gave at the office. I gave at the office. Nobody goes to the office anymore, so you can't even use that excuse anymore. I gave from my work-from-home situation. No, you didn't. <laughs> but it doesn't matter because we're so sinful that we'll even avail our consciences of the relief that can be seen in the things that we do, the things that we give, thinking that God can be bought. Nonsense. 
Why do we give our tithes? Why do we bring our offerings? Why do we give of our time, our energy, our gifts? It's because in Jesus Christ, we have been given freely the peace which he alone purchased at the cost of his precious blood. That's why we give. Not to buy God off. And anyone who gives the impression that God can be bought off, that you in some way or another, whether it's by your economic status or whether it's by your use of your gifts that he's given you to somehow earn his favor, whoever is saying that that is the way to accomplish peace with God is a false prophet. Peace can't be bought either by money or by performance. It was bought by the blood of Christ, which is now given freely to those who say yes and amen to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do false prophets continue to harass God's church? Is this something that we need to consider at all? Are false prophets, false teachers, is that something that has gone the way of circumcision, gone the way of the temple, Gone the way of Passover. Oh, this continues to plague us. That's what John says in 1 John 4.1. 1 John 4.1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. This thing hadn't even been off the ground for that long. The church had been going for what? John's letters, probably some of the latest in the Bible. I'm not up to date on my first John scholarship at the moment, but Revelation is written in like 90. So it was towards the end of the first century. And already he's like, look, there's a lot of false prophets. A lot of false prophets. This hasn't even been going on for 50 years yet. Like that quick things went wrong. Yeah, that quick. That quick, the enemy of the church was seeking to sow deceit in the midst of the community of truth. Because that's what the enemy does. He is what? The father of lies. Of course this is an issue because we still stand against an enemy who would see God's truth dethroned and the lie of man, which the father of lies subsidized, enthroned therein. So, of course, we need to be watchful, diligent, discerning, recognizing. How do we recognize? I remember playing baseball back in the day. You'd have to sit in a batting cage for hours watching pitches fly by you. Or maybe that was just me. Maybe everybody else was hitting them. I don't know. (laughs) But the goal was to recognize the pitch. You weren't supposed to swing. At least that's what I told myself. No, the drill was you're not supposed to string. You're just supposed to recognize the ball. You're supposed to recognize what the ball is doing. And by training yourself in recognizing what it looks like when the time of crisis came, when an actual pitcher was throwing you an actual pitch, you were ready to recognize. I know you're not supposed to use sports illustrations because like, you ostracize 70% of your audience. So please forgive me. But I think you see the principle. (laughs) You can use whatever you want, whatever your discipline is. Doctors have to do the same thing, right? 
You have to recognize certain things and you train yourself in what to recognize. If you're a linguist, you do the same thing. You see patterns that emerge across languages and you learn what to recognize and so on and so forth. How do we recognize a false prophet? By knowing God's Word. Oh man, we are so much better equipped than Israel of old was because we all possess the Word of God. You have it at home. I guarantee you do. Or if not, you have it on that ungodly device of a cell phone of yours. You can read it whenever you want. You can listen to it on your way to work or the way to your basement. Once more, we're working from home. You can listen to it while you run or walk or whatever. We have God's Word. One of the ways that God equips us to recognize true and false prophets is by steeping us in the truth of His Word. But there is another way. When Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, he says he wants to send them Timothy. Why? My hope is to send to you Timothy because I have no one like him who will seek your best interest, who will concern himself with you. For they all seek their own concerns, but not Timothy. The second way that you could recognize a true from a false prophet is their lives attest to the power of the gospel. Isn't this what Christ said? You shall know them by their fruit. Now this is true in the church especially. And I think it particularly orients us to why the community of God in the church is so wisely designed. I've made this point before. We live in an age of digital teachers, don't we? We live in an age where there are so many voices vying for your attention, vying for your allegiance, secular and sacred. There are blogs galore, podcasts galore, digital teachers galore. You can employ the first criteria to every single one of them. You can hold them accountable to God's truth. I would submit that you have no idea concerning the second criteria. And the wisdom of God, of a community of believers face-to-face with one another, whose lives to some degree are open and manifest to one another, it's much harder for me to convince you that I am an earnest follower of Christ than it would be for me to convince a host of followers on whatever social media platform you prefer. I could probably do a pretty good job of convincing my digital followers that I'm a sincere follower of Christ. Why? They don't get to come into my house. They don't get to call me on the phone. They don't get to see me when I'm at my worst and how I respond. You don't get to see your favorite blogger your favorite digital teacher that way. You do get to see one another and the leaders whom God has appointed in this church that way. And those are indispensable criteria that God himself has given us for knowing whether or not this is a true word, whether or not this is a true household. And he doesn't leave us just with the false. He does present a portrait of the true, which is also given to guide us and to lead us into understanding what is a true prophet. So we can look next at the true prophet, 
Just briefly in verse 8. As for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. We already said that the plain implication of this text is that Micah is the minority here. That there are a host of false prophets arranged against God's one prophet. You think of the episode with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. There were a lot of prophets. This was quite a spectacle. Gather the prophets of Baal. And they're all there. This whole host, this whole crowd is there calling on the name of Baal, calling on the name of this false god. And then there's Elijah. Elijah. He's alone. It's a very similar episode to the humorous episode in 1 Kings 22. Micah's namesake, Micaiah ben Imlad. You know this story? 1 Kings 22. King Ahab is deciding if he should go to war and he's seeking to elicit the ally of Jehoshaphat, the allegiance of Jehoshaphat, Judah's king. Starting in verse 5, And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first of the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me. Only evil. <laughs> All these prophets, the king gathers. Yeah, yeah, go to war, you'll win. Yeah, yeah, go to war, you'll win. What a surprise that the prophets tell the most powerful man in the land exactly what he wants to hear. And then there's one who never tells them what he wants to hear. This is one of the most striking features. I've spent an inordinate amount of time reading Neo-Assyrian prophecies. I wish this fate upon no one. But I have spent an inordinate amount of time reading prophecies from Mari in the new Assyrian Empire. And one thing all those prophecies have in common is nobody says a bad word against the king. <laughs> you tell the king exactly what he wants to hear. One of the loveliest testimonies of the true prophets raised up in Israel is they gave no regard for the things of man. In truth, in earnest, at cost. And that left them alone. That left them in the minority. It's remarkable how this tendency played out consistently over time. And it was chiefly played out when there was only one true prophet left in the whole world. The Lord Jesus Christ. All abandoned him. All turned aside. And he alone was standing as the true witness to God. And then the world was plunged into darkness when that light went out. The Lord Jesus Christ, the true witness here, anticipated by Micah in that he does not bow to the demands of the world. We'll let you be king if you give us the deliverance we want. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Just say what you need to say. He refused, bearing true testimony to the truth. Of God. For what needed to be done was not an earthly deliverance. What needed to be done was a sacrifice for sin. What needed was, 
What was needed was a redemption from the domain of darkness, the redemption from the imprisonment of sin and death and judgment for which he came as a sacrifice and not as another iteration of the kingdoms that pass away. Micah here is alone. Micah here is the minority, but he's in good company because he stands as friend of God. He stands as a servant of the true and living God, anticipating the great servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is the church a minority in the world? It's harder for us to see as United States citizens, isn't it? But you look at the church's experience throughout history, the church is the minority in the world. God's truth is always going to be the minority in the world. That is entailed in our very existence as sojourners. It's entailed in its very existence as those who are in exile. We live as a people who are not taken up with the things of this world but rather as those who have set their mind on the invisible things because we serve a king that has been seated at the right hand of the Father. Micah is a minority here. And the question that the church is faced with is, are we comfortable with this status? How much of our railing, how much of our discontent, how much of our frustration is due to the fact That this is the position that God has put us in. The minority position. The minority status. One of our members pointed out to me the story of the emperor's new clothes. Do you remember this story? A particularly vain emperor meets a couple of swindlers who pass themselves off as tailors. And they convince the king that They've made clothes that only the worthy can see. They've made clothes that only smart people can see. And so they give these clothes to the king, and he begins to parade about naked. (laughs) And he announces, only the worthy can see my clothes, only the smart can see my clothes. And everyone starts saying, well, yeah, they're great clothes. You look wonderful in your clothes. And person by person, group by group, crowd by crowd, they're incredible clothes. We kind of laugh like, man, those morons. But think about the power of that situation. Everyone is saying, he's not naked. And then, what do you say? What do you say? Now, we're members of the OPC, so we're like, well, we say he's naked! And we say it forcefully and courageously. Yeah, I know. But rising up is actually the same as shrinking back. (laughs) That's why we see the necessity of the Spirit here. To say that Jesus Christ is Lord in cruelty. It's just another iteration of the flesh. That's temptation when everyone turns to you. Jesus Christ isn't Lord. Jesus Christ isn't Lord. Jesus Christ isn't Lord. Jesus Christ isn't Lord. You feel it in your offices. Again, you're in your basements, but once upon the time you went to your office. And you can imagine this situation at the office. Jesus Christ isn't Lord, everyone says. Jesus Christ isn't Lord, everyone says. Jesus Christ isn't Lord, everyone says. What say you? And you're like, chances are you say nothing. Or, Jesus Christ is Lord, you moron. (laughs) 
Those are the temptations of the flesh. It just becomes one and is filled with the right content does not mean that it's the right answer. <laughs> so Micah here says, I come empowered by the Spirit. That Spirit that declares Jesus Christ is Lord and I love you even though this is incredibly uncomfortable for me right now. <laughs> this is remarkably uncomfortable for me. King, you are naked and it's incredibly uncomfortable for me in a lot of different ways. But it is uncomfortable for me, but this is the truth. I think the word that the OPC, we as members of the OPC need to hear probably isn't so much don't shrink back, but it's probably don't rise up. We love the truth. Our concern is that the truth goes forth in love. That the truth is an earnest expression of our heart for the lost. That the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ is set forth as that which saved me, who would have been lost, left to themselves. As that which can save anyone, because I was lost, just like you were lost. That's the spirit that Micah here sets forth, saying that he has been equipped by the Spirit in strength, in justice, in courage to do what? To declare the truth of sin. The world wants very little to do with the truth of sin. To declare one's sin is uncomfortable, is it not? For me to stand up here and to declare sin to you, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me. It's uncomfortable for you. I know you're sinners. I know you're sinners. Look, look, look. Like I know. I know it for a lot of reasons. One, because a lot of you are awful. (laughs) That's not the first reason. The first reason I know you're sinners is because God's word tells me you're sinners. But it's also because I'm a sinner. And I suspect you're dealing with the exact same things that my heart is dealing with. I suspect you're wrestling with the same doubts, the same fears, the same pride, the same love of self, the same lust for glory, the same lust for riches. Because that's what's going on in my sinful heart. And if you don't think it's going on in yours then you're downplaying the testimony of your heart, you're downplaying the testimony of this pulpit, and you're downplaying the testimony of God's Word. We don't have a prophet who downplays our sin. We have a prophet who plainly declares to us our sin. We don't have a prophet who affirms us in our sin. That's the gospel these days, isn't it? Affirm. 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 If you don't affirm, you're no friend. We have a friend who, blessed be his name, does not affirm us in our sin. He declares our sin to us plainly and then affirms his love for sinners. That is a better word. That is the gospel of grace. Those are two sides of the same coin. We are desperately vulnerable right now to downplaying the first. Sin is not 
a transgression against God. It's some sort of chemical response or some sort of justifiable response to hard situations. No, it's rebellion against the true and living God and it issues forth from hearts that are corrupt. And Jesus Christ says that plainly and then he says, but I know. I see it clearer than you see it. I I see it clearer than Michael sees it. My name's Michael. For those of you visiting, I'm the pastor here. I see it clearer than he sees it. And I love you still. For this reason, I gave my life. For this reason, I died. For this reason, I abased myself beyond your wildest imagination. For I am the eternal word, and I became man. I am the Lord of all, and I became a servant. I am holy beyond measure, and I was numbered among the transgressors. Indeed, counted a criminal, nailed to the cross, suspended between heaven and earth in curse, rejected of heaven, rejected of earth, and this should have been your portion, but I bore it because I know you're a sinner. And I love you. Salvation is not in downplaying the testimony of God concerning our sin. Salvation is in magnifying the testimony of God's Word against our sin and then doubly magnifying the grace of God on display in the Lord Jesus Christ who stands in the stead of sinners and who continues to seek and to save the lost. This is the wonderful word our true prophet declares. Let every imposter be put to shame. Join me in prayer. We give you thanks for this good word and our excellent prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. We give you thanks that he did not bow in fear of man capitulate to whatever foul demands were foisted upon him, shrinking back or rising up, but instead declared, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. How magnificent your wisdom and grace. How holy your ways, even in salvation. We pray, Father, that you would give us the ears to hear the voice of our true prophet and that leading us forth and continuing to preserve us from our love affair with lies, you would be pleased to magnify your truth in our hearts, that we may declare our yes and amen to a world that desperately needs this truth. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.